Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, we are back. Another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Jana, I'm glad that uh, you're joining us for today's episode. Jana Spengler's been with us for a chunk of the summer, going into some topics that have been deeply interesting uh, to her and I think to our audience and certainly to me um, today, maybe I'll turn some time over to you. You can kind of introduce the topic, take us where you want us to go, and uh, we'll get a conversation going. All right. Well, today we thought we would talk a little bit about mysticism. And um, that's a big word that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so um, maybe uh, to kick us off, let, I want to have a little conversation about what that is what and what I'm talking about when I am talking about mysticism and how mysticism, um, I want to talk about what it is. I want to talk about how attitudes that we've had toward mysticism, maybe how it relates to religious tradition and um, why in my experience and in my training, I've trained with some Christian mystics for a couple of years, Mm. um, what I think that it can bring to the whole conversation, whether it's within a religious structure or without. So I I love it. And I added to this topic, I put esoterica Mm -hmm. as well. And I think they're, connected, yeah. but also very different. Yes. And uh, I, I hope maybe we can talk a little bit kind of about that connection and maybe esoteric on its own. Um, when I think of mysticism or esoterica, I think of this idea that there is this information that is available through spirituality mm-hmm. that often contains kind of a secret knowledge that only a few, only the few kind of can gravitate onto. And I think for our audience, mysticism or esoterica for that matter, but mysticism is sort of a woo woo word. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't think folks easily gravitate to what's really going on there. And so I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think mysticism, especially in our rational day and age, has gotten a really bad rap. Um, And some of that for good reason, and some of that just from not understanding what it is we're talking about, right? So, um, and and I'm glad you're bringing the um, esoterica into it, because I think there is a difference between those things. And I think esoterica is more what people think of when they think Mm -hmm. of mysticism. Mm -hmm. So... Maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I have a definition of mysticism that I really like um, that I got from Mirabai Star, who um, is a wonderful teacher of spirituality and mysticism. Um, She says, a mystic is a person who has a direct experience of the sacred, unmediated by conventional religious rituals or intermediaries. Achieving that sacred or divine experience requires transcending established belief systems, bypassing the intellect, and dissolving identification with an ego self. 
So there's a lot in that definition. But I think the most important things are that mysticism is something that people experience, not something that they talk about. Um, yeah. And it, it really has to do with the inner experience and the direct experience with something bigger than ourselves or something deeply within ourselves. Um, and different mystical tr traditions will talk about that in different ways and use different language for it. You know, you're talking to the Christians, they're always going to be using Jesus and God language. Um, you talk about that with Buddhists, they're going to be using Buddha nature language, um, and they're going to be using language of transcendence and ego dissolution. Um, but er everyone has a different way of kind of talking about what that is. But it typically has something to do with a direct experience that one has typically when you're in deep silence or contemplation. And yeah. the, the word mystical comes from um, the word for mute. It actually has silence in the definition mm. of the word from the Greek. One of the things that comes to mind, and, and you said it in the, in the quote you just read where you mm. defined mysticism or gave the person who defined mysticism, mm. it seemed to me that religion, um, and I'm going to place it in that box for a moment, but religion mm -hmm. has these narratives and stories, these rituals, all the practices that go along with what it takes to be a Catholic or to be uh, a Buddhist or to be a Mormon. And we all are trained by the systems themselves to see that world very literally. Like, you know, if I'm a Catholic, then all the Catholic stories are true. This is the way it works. But in the quote you read, there's this indication that you got to move beyond the literal level. It's not, it's not the story for the sake of what the narrative is telling you that we've all been trained to see. It's rather what is the underlying thing going on in these stories that is far beyond whether the story is historically true or not. And that mysticism seems to connect more with the usefulness of the story rather than the literalness of the story. I think that is absolutely true. Um, I think that most of us have been handed, especially here in the West, we've been handed traditions, um, you know, that have been there for at least several generations. And most of us, when we learn them from that space, uh, we learn them in very rote, literalistic ways. And depending on the tradition, the vast majority of them don't really move us past that. We, you know, there are Catholic people who believe in the literal transubstantiation of the, the, the bread, the, you know, the wafer and the wine, that that is literally the, the body and blood of Christ. Um, and there are mystics who use those kinds of rituals to have a different kind of experience. Mm. So mysticism can involve some of those, you know, exoteric, the, the outer uh, rituals and things. Um, to bring on that mystical experience, but the mystical experience itself is very inner. Yeah. And, and you said it's not in language. It, it always occurs to me that, and, and of course we're sort of doing it here, but it always occurs to me that when you try to define whatever the reality of, um, spirituality is in, in terms of what it actually is like, here's the real thing. It's really reincarnation or, Hey, it's, it's really Hinduism or whatever it is. Um, it seems the moment you name it, 
you've missed it. And and you hit on this, that it's an experience. It's not a story. It's not a narrative. We use narratives to prompt people. It's the finger pointing at the moon. It's, it's mm-hmm. to prompt people to recognize like, oh, the story should have never been taken literally. It was an invitation into a spiritual space. And yet we can't avoid to get at it by telling stories about it or trying to name it. That's right. And it's always the thing that is hard about talking about mysticism because it is, um, by definition, it is ineffable, meaning it, it's hard to explain. You know, I, I, if I have a really, um, spiritual experience or, if I have, even if I have an experience of really deep suffering or deep love, there are certain subjects that are really hard for us to explain. If I, if I go through something really big in my life, it is really hard for me to explain to you what I am experiencing. Mm-hmm. It, and words fail. Words Always. fail every time. Yes. Even when we think we're agreeing to the meaning of words almost certainly it's weird, right? Like we're trying to express this human experience in inner and our observation of what's going on out of us and the ability to convey what I'm feeling or what I'm experiencing outside of me. Mm-hmm. Words were the best we could get at and they fail miserably in all honesty. Yes, they do. Yeah. So um, maybe let's talk a little bit about the differences between mysticism and and esoterica, Um, you know, just so that we are clear about what we, what it is we are talking about. And you've done a little more research into the esoterica than I have. I can, I can certainly speak to the mysticism. Yeah. What do you see as the difference? Yeah. I don't, I don't exactly know where to split the lines. Um, yeah. Here's, here's one thing I noticed is that Mysti- or is that esoterica seems to want to place more truth in the truthfulness of things like say masonry or um, the Kabbalion is a, is a book I think that in a group of folks that it will tend to take the woo and place a little more seriousness in whether that thing is literally true or not. But I think what it's trying to accomplish is very much the same thing as mysticism. It's trying, for instance, I wrote here, it's trying to get at hidden knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's trying to use symbolism and allegory to prompt us to cat as a catalyst kind of into seeing deeper concepts rather than worrying about the literalness of a story, for instance. Uh, there's this idea of alchemy and not alchemy in the sense of like, let's turn some copper into gold, but let's turn you and me into something better than we were when we started the process. But it does place more value in like the occult uh, here. It used the framework of occult sciences. It, it seems to want to ask it's the person who's delving into it. It seems to want to ask them to take what would seem as absurd to take it more literal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little turned off by that. Yep. And as I've spent the last week delving into esoterica, uh, there's a stand, is it 
something man, Stanley Mann or something like that. I think he's the gentleman who wrote like the foundational work on esoterica. And I've I've listened to several videos on YouTube where they're sharing quotes and things from various religions. And I've just found it really meaningful to thinking about things inside of myself, even if, in other words, sometimes things don't have to be true to be useful. Yeah. And I think esoterica is in a sense trying to get at the same thing that mysticism, and I think they overlap in a lot of ways. I, again, I think esoterica asks us to more trust more in things that are skeptical to the human mind. Yeah, I think so. I, I that's my sense as well. I feel like a lot of the, um, you know, things that people might put in the bucket of pseudoscience, right? That kind of to me falls more into the esoterica kind of bucket. Right. Yeah. So, um, things like tarot and astrology and, yeah. um, all, you know, and I agree with you. It, that does not mean that they cannot be meaningful and helpful. We do know that they fail in every study that has ever been done on, can I actually tell the future with some of these things? Everything has failed, um, any test, but um, but it doesn't mean you can't find meaning in those symbols. And it does not mean that you cannot achieve some sort of mystical experience yeah. through those means. And I'll add in both mysticism and esoterica, both, there are tons of religions and those religions have sacred text and sacred narratives. And almost certainly we don't capture in our modern reading of any of it. Do we capture what the actual authors of those texts intended or wanted these texts to be prompts to having happen within us? And, and I think any effort to help us to reconsider uh, all the sacred narratives of the world and to find meaning outside of you should believe this one thing literally so you get back to uh, the thing in the sky that's running things, you know, Yep. I think is useful. I agree. So I want to share. Um, I want to share a story. It's actually Jewish midrash on the Tower of Babel. And for people who don't mm. know what midrash is, it's basically fan fiction of, yeah. <laughs> of sacred stories. You and I are familiar with some of that. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, yeah, <laughs> a little something, something about it. Um, but I think it can be really useful. Midrash can be really, really useful. And I love this story because I think it shows a little bit about how this happens. I think most religions start with some sort of a mystical experience with somebody. Um, my, uh, before I tell the Midrash, my, one of my teachers at the living school, um, James Finley was trying to explain to us a little bit about what mysticism is and he was using Francis of Assisi as an example who uh, reportedly had an experience with the cross and was changed by it. And a little bit tongue in cheek, Jim Finley says, you know, Francis goes into the, into the chapel, has an experience with the cross. It is so deep. It changes him. He walks out of the church and his friends say, what is going on with you? Something is different. I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's different. And why are you wearing that sackcloth and ashes now? I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I'm going to wear sackcloth and ashes so that I can hope to experience and be what you are turning into. <laughs> but no one can quite put their finger on it. And 
even Francis has a really hard time explaining to people what that is that he's experienced, right? And I and I think a lot of a lot of spiritual movements start with something like this. And then the people are like, hey, whatever it is that you've got, I want it. So tell me what to do and I'll do whatever you're doing in yeah. hopes that it'll lead them there. Right. Yeah. When I when I did ayahuasca, hmm. I think I've said this on the podcast, but I just it, to me was so brilliant the shaman had his ritual i'm sure he was when he first got into this his whatever shaman he was taking uh, instruction from he took some of those practices and probably put in his own things too but he had a little table and there was the ayahuasca medicine and there was little perfumes and tobaccos and he would say like say things over all of this sort of a prayer and then he would blow tobacco smoke off into the room and he uh, spritz perfumes and and got everybody ready to do this thing of taking ayahuasca and i looked at all of this as what was going on and i raised my hand and i said what what i don't know what my language was at the time but essentially what the hell are we doing here what is this (laughs) and he said honestly i don't know this is all up to you to figure out and what I, i i knew right away what was going on the ritual put us into uh a luminal space and uh a uh, sacred space and the ritual didn't have to mean anything we only had to believe that it meant something because it then initiated us into you are about to enter a different space here yeah and that to me was gorgeous mm-hmm. uh, as a tool even though the ritual itself as far as the shaman knew had no real meaning or application other than to prepare us to know we were doing something different a hundred percent. And I, and I love that you bring that up, right? Because this is where religions crop up, right? People, it is because this is ineffable, because it is a, it is an experience that is hard to talk about. Um, we, we do need something in the flesh, in the con something concrete that we can touch, that we can say to each other, that we can put us in that f- frame of mind. Um, because it's really hard to uh, really connect to something that is so ethereal, right? So, um, so that that is true. We need something concrete in order to enter that space. And this midrash will kind of talk about the dangers of that, right? So, the midrash is on the Tower of Babel. Babel. I never know how to say it. Um, and so. As the the story goes, when people were first uh, starting to gather in cities, the first civilizations, um, the the people had one big city and it started growing and growing and growing. And their children kept having to find places further out and further out to live. And the, the elders decided we need to build a tower that is so tall that as our children and grandchildren grow and move out to further and further spaces, they will always be able to see this tower so they know where to come home so that we can keep Mm. our connection, right? So they build this tower and it gets taller and taller and taller and it is taking so long to build this tower that the original elders are long gone. Their children are gone. It's their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren trying to build this thing. And they have to these ramps that go around the outside where they have to take the building material and the bricks all the way up to the top of the tower. It takes so long to do that, that 
when somebody slips and falls and takes a bundle of bricks with them, the people start to mourn the bricks more than the loss of the person. (laughs) (laughs) And and then as they, they finish the building, they realize they're, they're high enough to reach heaven and they loot heaven and Mm. God curses them right with these different languages. And what do we learn from this story? There are a couple of things we learned. One is that when you are building somebody else's dream, you start caring about things and structures more than people. Mm. The second thing is that in that space, we have a really hard time understanding one another. Mm. Because to really understand one another on a deep level, it actually requires this kind of a mystical experience. That is where true understanding comes. It's not through the words. Words are so easily misunderstood. Yeah. Words, man, words, you can have the best of intention and just the wrong look on your face, which is unintentional or yeah, words fall short, even in the best of moments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So this is what happens. I think this is the life cycle of religions. So it starts with something that maybe is more, more pure, something that People feel helpful, helps them transform, helps them be more open, helps them be more loving. And then they systematize it so that they can transfer it. And pretty soon, like you said, it's the finger. We're we're worshiping the finger rather than the moon, as the Buddha says. And I even think about one example. I just came across this this week. I'm listening to a video on uh, esoteric... uh, stereotypes found in religious narratives. And one of them is the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. And the wounded healer is the uh, person in the story who has incurred trauma, has taken harm, has been hurt. And now they're able to be a spokesman to the rest of the community about how we ought to not hurt others. Right. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is just one wounded healer example among thousands found in various religions. The original message of a wounded healer is for us to go like, oh, that person has taken on incredible harm that we as a people have handed out, and they're here to remind us that we ought to be kinder and nicer. Mm-hmm. And then you take the Christian narrative, which has been turned into a, a religion mm-hmm. with lots of rules and expectations and standards, when maybe the story was really designed to get us to think about what happens when we are blindly obedient, when we uh, have a mob mentality, what happens when we see someone who's perfect the way they are, but who we place on them our expectations of what they should have been and punish them for it. And hence these, these narratives, as you're, as you're pointing out, and I'm trying to use this example to demonstrate these narratives are designed to get us to see something in the systemization of, of these stories has taken that away, stripped it away. And, and now we have to kind of scratch and claw to get it back. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me the effort of, of scratching, clawing away all the nonsense to get at the message is in part mysticism. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think mystics will tell you that they are touching into something that is more real than reality. They, mm. they, they use words 
that describe touching into something like an underlying reality of whatever that is. Religions tend to want to define that and they want you to believe their definition of it and their words to describe it. But, uh, you know, lots of people have done lots of fighting over the words <laughs> over the centuries, yeah. right? Yeah. But the experience itself, the, the mystics are telling you that they are, that it is a science in a way of tapping into something that is, I'm going to use a word here, transrational. Mm-hmm. So um, Ken Wilbur, who we, we did an episode a few weeks ago about kind of some of his framings. This is another one of his, uh, his framings. And it's something to think about as we're thinking about the mystical um, and trying to decide what is real and what is pseudoscience or what is, what is, uh, what is what when we're dealing with it. So he has this framing called the, uh, the he, it, it's a warning called the pre-trans fallacy. So uh, if we're looking at development and development of individuals, a development of societies, um, we, they tend to go through a pre-rational phase to a rational phase and then to a trans-rational phase. And each, each phase tends to uh, transcend and include something from the previous phase. Um, but often it's not until the transrational that we're able to really fully appreciate all the phases. But in a pre-rational space, what we're talking about is, let's use the phenomenon of a rainbow as an example. In a, pre-tra- a, pre- a pre-rational space, a people are, or a person is going to see a rainbow and they're going to have a story about that, that, you know, they thought of, they heard, they whatever, um, that it, they may think that that's God smiling on them. It's, it's a pleasant thing. So God must be happy. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, that, that means something good, right? Mm-hmm. A rational group is going to come in and use science and understand and study and know what a rainbow is and know that scientifically it it is water being refracted through the light being refracted through water mm-hmm. and we know what that is right a transrational experience would include both of those and it might include a mystical experience along with it so something real is happening something meaningful to you. It's not a story about what happened. We, from a transrational place, we fully understand rationally what is happening. We know what is creating the rainbow. We're not under any delusions about that. But we are open to having a connection, which many people have mystical experience through nature. Um, it is allowing yourself to be invited into a different state of consciousness through that experience of a rainbow. And we've all kind of had those moments where, you know, you might be gardening and you're doing your business and you're, you're, you're digging in the dirt and you're moving things and you're caring for your plants. And then maybe you just take a moment and stop and you notice how precious the world is, how beautiful the beauty of, of the nature um, around you. And you recognize you're part of that preciousness. This is the kind of language that mystics start to use, that they are having an experience where they're one with whatever is around. But what Ken Wilber says is that very rational people have um, a hard time telling the pre-rational from the trans-rational. And they can collapse any kind of experience that is not rationally understood into pre-rational nonsense. Yeah. 
So um, it's it's something to think about as we mm. and I think a good example of this is meditation. A couple of decades ago, we would have it. I think there were many rational people saying that that is pre-rational nonsense. But now that we have fMRI, now that we have EEG, now that we can we can actually record different states of consciousness, and we can monitor and see that brain matter, gray matter is is actually shaped by long-term meditation. That mm. you you gain brain matter through that. You know, when we now that we can see that, it's much more of a rational practice than someone once thought. So that's an idea of something that was probably transrational all along. But now we we can kind of get an idea of that because we can we can justify it in more rational ways. Yeah. I, I, what you said a moment ago about mm -hmm. um, the person in the middle who's trying to be rational often yes. confuses the pre-rational with the transrational and I think about that in terms of like when somebody is a stage of development, a couple stages of development ahead of you, mm -hmm. you can't figure out what's going on there. And often when the the black and white binary thinking person, um, the way that they utilize their religion, often to the person in stage four, say follower stages of faith, for instance, mm -hmm. one the person mm -hmm. deconstructing. Mm -hmm. They see the person on the other side who now is in, in Ken Wilber's spiral dynamics has become the magician <laughs> and the magician enters back into the religion and still speaks of it as if it's true, mm -hmm. but deep down inside they deconstructed it too. That's right. And they no longer, what's confusing to me is why can't mm -hmm. the folks on the magical side, the, the magician, <laughs> I don't mean magical, but the magician, yes. the yeah. folks who have unraveled it. And then decided to make it useful again. Yes. Why don't they just speak clearly to us and tell us <laughs> the hey, just FYI, nod, nod, wink, wink. Yeah. I deconstructed that stage. Yeah. I'm I I don't believe it that way anymore. I just speak of it in that way because that's how I that's how I relate to it and that's how I prompt others to think more deeply about it. Why can't we all just talk straight? I, I think it's really hard, Bill. And I, I think there's also one big thing that that history has shown us about people who try to do that yeah and it's that they, they get, get killed they get crucified, yeah. <laughs> they get crucified. burned at the stake they yeah do. hung hung they, on a wall yeah <laughs> they, they do they tend to do that and and they tend to be mistrusted by most people and because their experiences are not coming from a rational place uh people just really tend to just say whatever they either don't understand it or they just dismiss it completely. Yeah. Even in the system that we came from, or you're you know, still part of, there are folks who are on that edge of the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, often I hear the term neo-apologist, but I often feel like those folks are in the transrational stage. Like you said, they can't word it super clearly because if they did, they would be the heretics. Yep. And, but there's also like, Hey, I don't exactly know if you're on my side or not. Right. Like, I don't exactly know if we're on the same team. And I think sometimes that confusion around using language that is at least tolerated mm -hmm. when in reality, you're trying to prompt people to move forward into other stages of development, it, it seems to be a really tricky place. And I wanted to add one other thing too, which is when you yeah. talk about transrational, rational, or, sorry, pre-rational, rational, transrational. Another yeah. thing I was thinking about this week was like relics, religious relics. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And on the on the pre-rational stage, relic, you know, the the chalice that Christ drank from at the Last Supper, it's it's his chalice, and and then the rational stage is like, man, you know, that probably isn't the way the story quite unfolded. <laughs> this chalice probably isn't the one. Yes. And then, but then transrational, I also grasp that sacred relics are a crucial way to pass the importance of the story along in a way that it's valued and perpetuated. So the next generation has a consistency of human narrative, which we all need. Yes. And so the system came up with ways in which to pass along tools and technology and information Mm -hmm. and to have us not reject it. And so transrational often sees the overarching value that both the pre-rational and the rational are completely missing. Missing. I, I agree. And I, I, I think that having transrational people be, um, you know, leaders in some sort of movements is a little bit of my hope for the future of community around mysticism. Um, I, I'm hopeful that as more and more people reach a stage like that, that we will develop better ways than just uh, the ways that we have done it in the past with dogmas and and uh, just ritual alone that tends to become flattened out and literalized. Like we've got to find a way for people to be able to grow past that and deepen their spirituality because you're really not deepening spirituality just by affirming what you already know over and over and over again until you die. And yet in the West, we call that faith. Don't you feel like the push and pull between the mystics Mm -hmm. and the religious authorities, Mm -hmm. that that push and pull is almost intentionally designed to only allow progress at a speed at which we can collectively handle it? I wish I could give them that much credit. I kind of think that, yes, that is that is a result of some of it. But I, yeah. I just think a lot of people who start to be responsible for a whole bunch of people live in a lot of fear and haven't. Mm. And they tend to not do enough of their inner work to be able to hold something bigger. So yeah, the safety and security of pre-rational answers. Yeah. And yeah. and rational for that matter. And rational answers. And rational. There's a lot of safety in both of those things. Yeah. There's risk in transrational. Mm. There's risk of of there's vulnerability in transrational. You know? Mm. That it's it's not something I can just prove to you and feel like I'm right and pat myself on the back. This is that that's why it is tied to ego dissolution, I think. Because ego is the thing that wants to wants us to stay on track and right and you know doing everything that we should and to be so that I can be admired. Mm. Yeah. I love it. One thing you said a minute ago, and I just want to comment on this because um, as someone who's been doing this for a while, I feel like there are some people who have deconstructed and are doing transrational work and are doing more mystical work. And I think that there are other people who have not done that. I would actually call the neo-apologists something different. I don't think they're doing the same thing as what I mean as mysticism and transrational. Yeah. I They are still very much in the rational. And I don't think they've fully de- deconstructed. I think they're still holding on to stuff. I just think they've learned to hold a lot of complexity. Yeah. 
No, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I don't want to drop names, so that's why I'm trying to avoid it. But there <laughs> yeah. are certain folks yeah. who remain in mm-hmm. our old faith system yes. who absolutely don't believe it. Yep. But who communicate in well in ways that sort of to the to the person listening who doesn't understand what's going on inside that other person, it yeah. seems very confusing and almost like a double standard. Yes. But I understand knowing their life experience mm-hmm. that they really are transrational. That's right. And trying to help people nudge them along. Yep. So no, I agree with you. Most neo-apologists wouldn't fit into the category I was trying to describe. They would not. No. They would not. And and the people that we're talking about that are truly in this more transrational space, it 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 is hard to understand when you're fully rational. It is, it really makes no sense because you don't even have a framework for what they're saying. Because it's not even that they just, I don't believe it but I'm going to pretend like I do. That is not even what they're doing. They see the belief system as very, very important. Um, and they, they see beyond it. They see what its uses are. They, they transcend and include those experiences. So they believe it, but not in a literal way that most people would be saying, I believe this. They believe something different about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. And and I, I grasp that. Yep. Um, I, I'm just, I'm stammering only because mm-hmm. uh, there's so many rules and things you have to play. If you're going to stay in the system, yep. but you're going to sort of sabotage it. <laughs> and by sabotage, not like you're trying to ruin it for everyone, but mm-hmm. you're, you recognize that if people stay at the literal level, they are making the least amount of usefulness of the story and they're most likely to perpetuate harm. Mm-hmm. But if you word things in an honest way, you, you become a heretic and you're burned at the stake. Yes. Then all these games have to be played. Mm-hmm. And uh, those in those games are necessary. If you're going to be on the inside, nudging people towards growth and mm-hmm. better well-being and, on transcendence of the inner self and outer world, the universe around us. And yet all that gets messy. That's such a, well, it does such a because, complex thing. Because we don't have the transrationalists in charge. And that's where it becomes a problem yeah. because people have to move through a literal stage. That is a, a, a necessary and that stage of growth is just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if it is all there is, and if you start telling people who grow past it that they're wrong, that's yeah. what becomes really problematic. Crucify or, him. Crucify yeah. him. Yeah. 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 Or the people, not even who grew up beyond it, but even just the people on the edges of it that don't do it well. Yeah. We've talked about that. But yeah. I'm I'm yeah, totally. I won't say yeah. any more there. Yeah, yeah. Other thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah. So that kind of lay, lays a, a groundwork of what we're talking about. I I think um I've got a few more like statements about mysticism. But I think one of the best ways to talk about mysticism is through hearing mystics themselves, hearing hearing people who are very skilled and and are poets. I I this is why I love 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 poetry. Never got it when I was earlier on in my life. I would mm. groan every time in English class we would have to do any kind of poetry. But I found that through my deconstruction, I started loving poetry. <laughs> and it's because there are certain poets who are able to speak to some of these things in ways that invite us into 
more of an experience. And so I like the words of poets that, um, and the words of the mystics themselves to give us a, just at least a little taste as much as we can of what they're experiencing. Mm. Um, the other thing that I wanted to maybe talk about is just this idea of dual and non-dual or mind of one and mind of two kind of ways of thinking. That's another way to enter into this idea of mysticism. So, mm. um, so I'll, I'll share a quote from my mentor, Jim Finley. Uh, the mystics are not writing for our logical minds, but to awaken our heart, our hearts to what matters most. This requires us to slow down enough to catch up with ourselves. These meditations call us to settle into quiet, prayerful pondering about who we deep down really are and are called to be and how we can be more faithful to it. So it's a very individual journey that he's asking us to go to. And when we listen to the mystics, like he said, we're not, they're not trying to get us to understand something. They're trying to get us to feel something, mm -hmm. to awaken our hearts to something bigger. I just kind of think of, of, uh, some of this. I know when I experience something more, uh, more mystical, like I think about nature for me as a big one that invites me into the mystical, mm -hmm. I, I think of words like openness, largeness, like I, things tend to expand and my heart tends to expand in a way that if I saw you while I'm in that state, I don't you know, even if I don't know who you are, I just love you. I just have so much love for you and include you in my world, right? Right until I get in my car and go get in traffic and hate everybody again, right? <laughs> But we've all had those experiences where our hearts just feel large. And that is what the mystics are trying to invite us into. That state of mind where we can include more, we can include more people, we can include more of ourselves. And that there are healing properties to this. So Jim says, uh, stabilized in love, we are grounded in the courage that empowers us to touch the hurting places. And I'm going to pause here. Because being human is hard. Mm. Being human is really hard. We suffer in our humanity. So um, back to his quote. Prior to being grounded in love, we think we are nothing but the self and that things, that things happen to. That's all we think we are. We are afraid to go near the hurting place because we absolutize the relative. And to him, the self is relative. The deeper mm. self inside is not relative. It's absolute. But if we are absolutely grounded in the absolute love of God that protects us from nothing, even as it sustains us in all things, it grounds us to face all things with courage and tenderness. Mm. And I love Jim Finley's words. His words always kind of invite me into the possibility of what this can be. He uses a lot of God language. He uses a lot of Jesus language. He was a Trappist monk for six years early in his life, and then he was a trauma therapist. But he knows a lot about what healing is and a lot about how these mystical states can help us have enough love to heal ourselves, because love ultimately is what heals us. Hmm. Um, I think the last thing I'll, I'll share, well, there are a couple of different ways we could go here, but this idea of the mind of two and the mind of one, I think is really, really helpful. That's, that's more Zen language, the mind of two and mind of one. Um, Richard Rohr kind of Christian mystic language is, is the dual and non-dual ways of thinking. 
Um, but most of us live in in a, a mind of two most of the time. Even people who have contemplative practices are in the mind of two most of the time. It's because that's our operating system. That is the way our brains work, right? The, the minute that we're born and we're an infant and we start to realize that I'm me because I'm not you, <laughs> which I don't know exactly when that happens. It's pretty early on, but apparently infants all think they're just they, they don't see a difference between me and you. They're in more of a mystical state. <laughs> um, but once I know that I'm not you, my mind starts working in comparison and in difference. So I know, um, if, and at first it's just me, and then it's my group. My group does these things. Your group does that things. My group looks like this. Your group looks like that, <laughs> right? Um, and... That's really, our egos start to be developed really early. Our egos are there as a protection system. I think egos get a really bad rap. We we need our ego. It's doing something very useful to help us um, survive and help us be well thought of and help us, you know, be able to cooperate with the people around us, you know, but they can get, they can get in the way also. So um, other things that are in, that uh, put us in the mind of two, as we've talked about, words are part of the mind of two. That is a part of a dual way of thinking. Um, that is not what we're talking about in, in mysticism or mind of one. Um, things that are material, concrete beliefs, literal beliefs, either or ways of thinking, black and white, that is what our mind of two does. And that is our egoic operating system that most of us are in most of the time. The mind of one, by contrast, is one that starts to experience oneness. And this is this is one of the, the big elements of most mystics, uh, regardless of what tradition you come from. You know, the Sufis will talk about this from an, a, a space of the uh, Muslim tradition. Um, People in Jewish people that are into Kabbalah will talk about these kinds of things. You'll hear similar language among all of these mystical branches of the different traditions that actually often sound more like each other than they do the tradition they came from. Um, but the mind of one is the realm of trust and faith, not as belief, but as trust. It's the realm of love, of your true self or Buddha nature unity, and things like suffering, God, spiritual experience, um, all come from that mind of one. Paradox comes from the mind of one. Um, there's Cynthia Bourgeau, another teacher of mine, did a, a really great book about Jesus, if anyone's interested, called The Wisdom Jesus, where her, her whole idea is that Jesus was trying to get us out of the mind of two and into the mind of one. Mm. That, that he taught in paradox because of that. He was trying to scramble, all those parables were trying to scramble your sense of ego and fairness mm. and get you to think differently. Yeah. And that he was a wisdom uh, teacher like Buddha. Just to say, I'm, I'm doing IFS therapy, right? And mm. one of the things that's about me, again, eight on the Enneagram, is that I need the world to be fair. <laughs> and my <laughs> IFS therapist, my therapist is like, well, let's, you know, let's talk about it. And we've spent a lot of time, we've spent a lot of time talking about the parts of me that need the world to be fair and whether yeah. that's real or not. And mm. anyway, it just mm. another tangent. Sorry. But. Oh no, it's a great example of that. Right. Because, yeah. because the parables that talk about fairness 
only make sense. They, they will never make sense in our head. We will never be able to make it work. You have to go into your heart cognition in a world where I know you, I care about you, I understand your circumstances, and I am absolutely okay with you being paid the same as me for less work. <laughs> that only yeah. works from a heart cognition. Yeah. Mm. Right? Fairness is when we're we're really stuck in that mind of two. Um, the mind of one can has space um, for both and. Yeah. It has a space for it's both you and me. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Both exist. Mm. So that's that's one of the splits that a human starts to have that in in mystical language we have these different splits that as a human, I forget what my true nature is. There are echoes of this in Buddhism. You forget your Buddha nature, right? You forget that you're, you're big enough and, and that you have so much capacity for infinite love inside yourself that it is big enough for this whole world and everybody in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of the splits that we have as humans that, I think have been necessary for our survival. I mean, I think they evolved this way for a reason, <laughs> but they tend to not necessarily lend themselves to our full, our to wholehearted living, to um, fulfillment, to joy, to um, to settled, peaceful ways of being. Right. Um, so one. That the one that mind of one and mind of two is one big one. It's myself from yourself and this illusion that we are separate. And you will hear mystics use that kind of language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I you and I are, are are not different. We just have the illusion of being different. We are two perspectives of the the universal consciousness, right? That, that's right. We we yeah. are the we are the stardust that has risen up and having a conversation with itself. The universe got so curious that it started showing up as awareness and curiosity. That's right. And that, that yeah. is mystical theology. Yeah. Right? And that there's some engine of love out there so big that that engine of love is what creates you and me. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's one of the, one of the splits. The other one is that, uh, life from death. That's one that we experience for at a very young age. Most of us will have some experience in our youth with death, whether it's a pet or a, a relative or a grandparent or a friend that we will, we will notice that things live and then they die. And again, the mystics yeah. say that that's an illusion as well, that we're all part of this deeper consciousness that goes on and on and on. Um, body from mind. So this is a big one. Um, I've heard a lot of Eastern practitioners that make fun of Westerners calling us a big orange on a toothpick because we are so cognitive in the West. Yeah. We want to do everything in our brains. Um, mm. So we've, we've always given in the West, we've given mind preeminence. We, we want the mind to be number one and the body, eh. <laughs> You know, I guess, I guess I have to deal with that too. Yeah. Right. And there, there are certain traditions that are trying to reclaim that, you know, in like Tantra or other, other um, embodied practices. They do this much better in the East, in the Eastern traditions. Um, but we have that split and 
that has shown up in really, really damaging ways, I think, in our religions, in purity culture, yeah. that split from body. Somebody's asking a question here. Yeah. I, I don't have a ton of experience with Carl Jung. Yeah. Um, but your thoughts here, would either of you consider Carl Jung or Jungian psychology to be part of transrationalism? I, I, I would. I think that uh, Jung was trying to describe some of those transrational things. I'm not an expert in Jung either, but from my my limited knowledge, I think his work with the uh, with shadow, with the the con the collective unconscious, um, with his archetypes, I think he was he was tapping into um, transrational uh, subjects there for sure. Yeah, I have less um, experience with them, but I agree with you. That, that's yeah. also what I see. Yeah. Um, and then the last split that we have that the mystics would talk about is our acceptable self from our unacceptable self. And this is mm. speaking of Jung, perfect, perfect cue there for the Jungian psychology. Um, it's the shadow, the parts of ourselves that we're not proud of. Um, and they're also you. They are you. And we yeah. tend to be healthier when we recognize it and and embrace yeah. it rather mm. than run away from it. Because as we run away from it, we have this pressure to show up as some idealized Instagram self and let you all know that I am perfect at all times and I have the perfect shiny family and I have no problems. And somehow that makes my ego really happy. But uh, one of the things that Richard Rohr, another mentor of mine, always says is that Christianity went after the wrong thing. That Christianity went after the shadow and called it sin and made us ashamed of it. Rather than going after the ego, which is actually the thing that is keeping us separate. Mm, yes. And religion becomes the place where ego gets cemented because ego loves to be right and separate and superior. And religions actually take us away from God. Who knew religion is the perfect place to hide from God? Yeah, yeah I was thinking about I was thinking about this last night. I said to my wife, or I said to somebody, I said to him, religion gives us this safe space where our ego gets to think it's good by checking boxes, mm -hmm. but which is prevented from actually confronting itself and having to deal with what that is that's in the mirror. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And and unfortunately, most of our, our Western Christian religions have kept to the exoteric, the literal and have not allowed this mystical experience to to really deepen. And um and and there are many who have noted this that if religion is going to be saved for any kind of future generation it's really important for people to start to notice this and to reclaim some of the mystical roots otherwise you're just a ref you're not doing anything new for the world. You are just a reflection of your culture. That's it. You're, and you're then you're just holding on to that culture through religion rather than bringing something new and transformational to the world. Yeah. And not to give preference to any particular religion, Christianity is one path of narratives and rituals and insights to figuring out how to be a better human. But Jesus is one hell of an example at really trying to get at the ego. And as you point out, the people that he was, con the, the thing he was condemning and it's showing up in people they were the ones who turned the message on its head and made it about something else other than ego. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's messed up. <laughs> it is. It <laughs> is. This being human stuff is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So maybe I'll just share a few of these ideas about like just words from the mystics to give mm. just a feeling of what they were trying to say. And I'm going to start with one that's not my, my wheelhouse is the Christian mystics, but um, everyone loves some Rumi, right? <laughs> Hafiz is another great, um, you know, uh, he's a Sufi poet as well. It's interesting that all of these tend to come out of the medieval period. Um, the, the medieval world before we had the printing press actually was kind of ripe for this kind of stuff. There were a lot of people living a monastic life or just going really, really deep in community usually not alone, but in community, there were a lot of people really going deep with God um, or with our soul or whatever you want to call it. Most of the medieval people called it God. Um, so Rumi says, and this is a very famous uh, poem, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. One of my favorites. Love it. Um, I'll read a few from the Christian mystics. So a favorite of mine is Julian of Norwich. Uh, she says, for we are so preciously loved by God that we cannot even comprehend it. Um, this beloved soul was preciously knitted to God in its making by a knot so subtle and so mighty that it is one in God. In this oneing, it is made endlessly holy. Furthermore, God wants us to know that all the souls which will be saved in heaven without end are knit in this knot and one in this oneing and made holy in this holiness. <laughs> I love it. I love using uh, using nouns as verbs, and oneing is one of my favorite. <laughs> um, and the love of God creates in us such a oneing that when it is truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another. Um, this was one from Théard de Chardin. Pierre Théard de Chardin is an interesting one. He's a little, he's not medieval. Um, he's, uh, he, I, I, I believe, late 19th century into the 20th century, and he was a scientist, which I think is fascinating. When I, when I consider the truly great scientists, I think most of them have to be tapping into mysticism, frankly. Um, Otherwise, that I think that's the realm of imagination. Um, a, a good scientist isn't just learning the rules and is fully rational. I think they have to tap into the transrational to even imagine what that next step of reality is. So um, I don't know. I've actually had some, some deep mystical experiences myself in considering some of Einstein's theories. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm pretty convinced that he had a lot of mysticism in him. Mm. Uh, but Teilhard de Chardin says, love is the most universal, the most tremendous, the most mystical of cosmic forces. Love is the primal and universal psychic energy. Love is a sacred reserve of energy. It is like the blood of spiritual evolution. Mm. So you'll, you'll hear that a lot of these people, they, they, what they're really speaking to is love. Number one, love. It's connection. It's communion. It's being part of something bigger. They call it God. I don't think you have to call it God. But I think we've all experienced that. It, and the only way to to explain it is it's just big. It's inclusive. Yeah. It's bigger than me. Yeah. When I feel it, it's bigger than me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? It includes something. Mm. Um, 
And so, you know, Teresa of Avila, for instance, um, there is nothing missing because even the experience of missing of love is the love. It's the love giving itself to you as the intimacy of the yearning for love. Mm. Um, you're worth all that God is worth. You are as precious as God is precious. You have value that cannot be calculated. And this is why we don't understand ourselves. To understand yourself, you have to understand God. Yeah. And none of us can <laughs> yeah. because you are God. Yeah. Um, so let me, um, yeah, here's, here's one that speaks to inclusivity. This is Bonaventure. God is therefore all inclusive. God is the essence of everything. God is most perfect and immense within all things, but not enclosed outside all things, but not excluded above all things, but not aloof below all things, but not debased. Finally, therefore this God is all in all. Mm. So they have, they have a million different ways to say it, but it's all pointing to this inclusivity. Um, so I spoke of poetry. I would like to share a, probably one of my favorite poets. is um, He's a modern poet, still living. His name is David White with a Y-W-H-Y-T-E. I highly recommend people check him out. Mm. He, he runs a lot of really great programs. Um, but uh, here's a taste of one of his poems that I think points to him as a mystical poet. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned, if you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you were prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. Mm. I have heard in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. Mm. Mm. So yeah. what comes up for you, Bill, as you hear some of these, these words of the mystics? When I hear the words of mystics, I am uh, impressed with how, and somebody said it, and you said it too, inclusivity, and somebody here said it's big and inclusive. Yes. It really makes it, it's completely okay the way things are. Yes. And at the same time, there's a call to do something more to figure that out, right? That's right. That's right. It, it seems very accepting of all of us. It seems very inclusive of all the variations of humanity mm -hmm. and life. It seems to be very connected um, to, to uh, the positive feelings of caring about each other and love, but also at the same time, like the, the irony is that it also honors that bad behavior or unhealthy behavior or causing hurt is also kind of the yin to the yang of the universe, right? It's, it's, it's also yes. like, it's not approving of it. It's not, mm -hmm. but it's also noting, like, don't judge it over there. Cause it's in you too. That's right. That's I don't right. know. They're just in, and I've got a couple of quotes here. If I, you don't mind if I share them, please, these are, um, so let me just read a few because I, I don't even know how to put words. And these are just one. They have nothing to do with each other necessarily. They're just some of these are modern 
what I would call mystics too, for instance, Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like Master Eckhart said, theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language. Mm -hmm. Alan Watts said, a priest once quoted to me the quoted to me the Romans saying that a religion is dead when the priests laugh at each other across the altar. Mm -hmm. I always laugh at the altar, be it Christian, Hindu, or Buddhist, because mm -hmm. real religion is the transformation of anxiety into laughter. Mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell said the psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. Um, Simone Wheel, or well, beautiful, a beautiful woman looking at her image in the mirror may very well believe the image is herself. Mm. An ugly woman knows it is not. Mm. Um, let me read one or two more. Master Eckhart, mm. the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. And then a last one here, uh, Michael Bassey Johnson. Don't call anyone a devil because within you, you can call, you can experience, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Don't call anyone a devil because within you, you can experience hell and the devil and the devil is nothing but you. Mm. Right. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you're bringing that in because it is true. It is it is part of the mystical path um, to include not just all the good and wonderful and beautiful and love, mm. but it also recognizes what is um, what is hard, what is difficult, what is suffering, what is evil. Um, it, it includes that it does not hide its face from it. Mm. It recognizes that both sides are important and both parts are part of our human experience. And it is paradoxical. This is why it is really hard to um, for us to even understand this. And you spoke to one of the big paradoxes. This is one that mysticism speaks to, in, is that in the deep acceptance of things exactly as they are, we find peace. And in that deep acceptance, we do not give up the the call the yearnings of our heart the things that are unaccomplished the things that we want to better ourselves those are not given up but they are not the focus and what we find is that when we accept everything as it is when we see our infinite worth when we see that we are not separate that we are um enclosed by love and that it is just there if we just shut up our brain long enough to feel it um that when we do that, we are actually more able to achieve the things we want to achieve, that it mm -hmm. becomes a more effortless achievement. Yeah. And the, the universe, if we go back 13 billion years ago, the universe has pushed towards creation and complexity mm -hmm. and consciousness <laughs> and self-awareness and hence why wouldn't it be ingrained in all of us when we connect with that to also want to do those things yeah yep. yeah and it is it's, it's part of loving this experience this consciousness this humanity loving every part of it regardless of the difficulties that come our way and, and the mystics don't hide their face from that. Here's a, this is a great poem 
I'll, I'll also share a David White poem about this called Sweet Darkness. This is another one of my favorites. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Mm. It's another one of my favorites. But yeah, it's it's this is another space where it's very Jungian, right? That's that it's bringing that shadow. It's the the integration of shadow that helps us become more well. Mm. When we stop, have we we can stop pretending to be something we're not. And so this is this is why when I said earlier that myst the mystics would tell you that they are tapping into a deeper reality that is more real than the reality we think we experience every day. That's what they're talking about. There's this strange irony. We, I think I've said it before. I think you've said it as well in this, in this conversation. There's a strange irony where when I, I can't exactly tell you what a mystical quote is other than when I hear it, I know it, right? Yeah, yeah. But when you when you hear or read a quote out of mysticism, mm -hmm. you there's something delicious about it. It 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 calls when you're sitting present. I don't know how to explain it. You, you sit with these yeah. quotes and they draw you to see what you weren't seeing prior to reading that quote. But but is but is true, mm -hmm. and yet it's always a bit fuzzy and it's yes. it doesn't have the delineated lines that allow me to see to see it clearly it's almost like it's not exactly comprehensible but yet it's more delicious than that which is clearly defined 100 yeah. percent. i remember when it was on my first seven day silent retreat which was a lot of that time was spent in meditation. You could six to eight hours a day in meditation. And I just remember being really bummed at one point <laughs> during the experience, recognizing how much my mind and my ego had lied to me throughout mm. my life uh, to, to keep me safe. But it had lied to me about who I was. And it wasn't until I got that quiet that I recognized that my heart is more true than my brain, which I did not want to see because I really like my brain bill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really? Yeah. I really, it makes me feel very safe for whatever reason. I feel safe when I can articulate something and feel right about it. And yet I'm wrong so much of the time. Like all humans are, we don't even recognize it, how wrong we are most of the time. But the heart and that that connection is never wrong. Yeah. I'm I started reading when I was in the Grand Canyon with my wife and my kid, and I was reading uh Don Miguel Ruiz's he's he who he is it is he who wrote the four agreements and the fifth agreement mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. But one of his newest books is called Circle of Fire. 
Mm. And uh, and he's a mystic, and he uses mm. a language that if you were religious, you would go, "Oh yeah, he's religious too," but you don't know that that's not what he's doing at all. But he speaks of it as you know, we're all having a dream. In my head, my I'm, I'm the I'm the star of the show here on this play, and you're the star of the show inside your head. We're all having a dream, and that any time we hurt each other, we misunderstood that dream, like. Like you've got a dream. I've got a dream. We have our own interpretation of what's going on around us. And anytime we hurt each other, there's, there's a misplacement or a misunderstanding of, I I took my dream as being the truth, or you took your dream as being the truth. And they're just not. The, The truth is so far from any one of us, how we would explain what reality is that it's almost always a misunderstanding where both people thought the world was something and both were wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, I had it described to me by a po- again, a poet, I trust the poets to have all the, the really great, um, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Just analogies and, and symbols for things. But, um, I, I was at a retreat with this well-known poet, his name's Mark Nepo, and he had to sit around a table, um, pretty spread out, and it was a smallish table, round, right in the middle, and he had knickknacks on it, and he pointed out that everyone in the table had a different view of this table, and the ones that were on opposite ends had really different views of the table, and this is this is how we each perceive the underlying reality. We all have the ability to kind of see and touch what that underlying reality is. But we're seeing it through a, through our own lens and it's limited. And most of us don't know that. Most of us are going through life I think because it's really vulnerable and scary <laughs> to imagine that we don't really know what's going on. Yeah. But what he pointed out is that if we, the, the way to know more of what the underlying reality is, is just to talk to each other and really listen. And if we were willing to do that rather than argue with what you're seeing, but to really hear what you're seeing, that is how we get closer to understanding this underlying reality. It's by actually listening to each other. Yeah. And, and we don't even sense, not only are we missing everything mm-hmm. from another's perspective, like you said, the opposite sides of the table. But we also miss things at like this micro and macro level. In other words, if you were as small as a red blood cell, what would you see? How would the world look to you? What what would be going on? And then we recognize like you're you and I'm me and this desk is desk. But if we get down to the smallest degrees of what makes something tangible, much smaller than molecules or atoms, it's Mm -hmm. essentially the same stuff. Yep. And somehow that same stuff here is a desk and over there it's a human being. And, and then at the macro level, if you step back and give yourself perspective from a distance, mm-hmm. you know, when you're out in space and you look at the planet earth, you watch a documentary on, on, on earth and you see it from space and you go like, why the hell are we fighting with each other? Why, why am me and my uh, spouse having an argument today about this thing when in the realm of, of the macro level, it, it really isn't important at all. That's right. Perspective adds so much value when we're missing so much of it. 
Absolutely. And that, that's and that's what the mystics talk about. So the, the mystics talk about needing to have some sort of practice that invites us into that bigger way of thinking so that we don't get so lost in the in those little things in our life that we think that everything in front of us is a fight that has to be won. You know, that that is that anxiety, right? That trans transmutes into I can't remember what it was that that quote said, the anxiety transmutes itself. That that is that is the act of healing. It's taking the anxiety, the hurting places, and infusing it with something bigger that then lets that piece of whatever our experience has been, our hurts are real. Getting to the macro doesn't mean that what has hurt me doesn't matter. It's actually the thing that resources me so that I can look at the micro things that do matter, those little hurts, and infuse it with the kind of understanding and love that that bigger view affords me so that it can transmute into grief, so that I can grieve it and move through it and release it. That's the mm. act of healing. That's the act of transformation. And it requires us to have some sort of practice, whatever that is, to enter that, that place. And it's different for different people. This is one of the things that I think religion does that is a violence to people, is it prescribes your spiritual practices for you. This is the way you do it. Well, no, that's the way it worked for a bunch of the founders. Yeah. It, it's not necessarily the way it works for you. And you don't have to have a religion to do it. You can have your own, right? Yeah. Spirituality seemed, you know, again, if we go back to these religions of, um, I'm trying to figure out how, at some point the world became more modernized and the religions that got created in those moments going forward were very different from the ones that were more ancient. And the more ancient religions seemed to value uh, somebody like when they came of age of going off and having their own experience, for instance, yeah. and the systems today, the religious systems today coming of age is where you sort of join with the group, go through a ritual. And now you're one of us, but the old tradition, the old religion seemed to send you out mm. and go have your own experience. And so spirituality has always been something where I saw like the shaman encouraging you to have your own experience, make your own meaning out of it. And then come back with that perspective and add it to the group. Whereas religion seems to say, no, we know what the experience should look like. Here's how it should be defined. If you can only be acceptable if you have it within the uh, prescribed way. It has to fit in this box. And, yep. and I think you're right. We have to get back to a place where we let people figure out. Their, because you're so different from me. Mm -hmm. And and we're more alike than a lot of people, I think, in the ways we think about things and the things that are interesting to us. And and yet yep. you're alien to me. So why <laughs> the hell would one system fit all of us? Right. Makes zero sense at all. We should have all been allowed. We should have been taught that whatever you experience doesn't necessarily mean it's reality. Right. But go off and have your own experience. Yes. And and wrestle with whether it's reality. Yes. And then have a safe space where you can come back and talk about that with wise yeah. elders, with people who can who can honor your individuality, who can honor who you are and the way that it works for you and doesn't try to impose themselves on you, but is just there to be a mirror so that we can more clearly see ourselves. Because for whatever reason, 
we're a mystery to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, the ancient religions, and again, the ayahuasca experience I had. Mm -hmm. The next morning, we all got together and sat in a circle, and we integrated that experience. Everybody got to share what yes. they what, what what happened to them and what they learned from it, because when you encourage people to have different experiences and you don't make it fit in a box, you get the chance to learn from the entire community, not this bullshit way of learning where we all go into a Sunday school class and we're all told to say the same three or four answers all the time. Rather, you are permitted to have the most unique experience in the world and now come back and share with me who did not have that experience what you learned from it. Ayahuasca was perfectly that. Everybody, 11 of us, 14 of us, we got up the next day, we sat in a circle and the shaman asked all of us to report back. And I learned things from what other people were sharing. There's yeah. so much value in a mystical experience being acceptable to a group of people wherein they are all having those. That's right. Yeah. And, and mysticism, though it is entirely individual because we can never quite explain it to another person, mm -hmm. no. the mystics always point to community. They always point to community because I think that even though we're individuals having this individual experience, there is so much that we gain in community, a community that is mature enough to hold space for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I love it. Well, there's, there's an interesting side conversation going here and you, you posted Brit's question um, a while back that I thought was a really interesting question, right? Yeah. I um, wonder if Mormons have a hard time making the jump to mysticism because trusting our hearts over our brains feels so scary after Mormonism. So I, I wonder if she's saying ex-Mormons, yeah. it can feel like being manipulated again. Yeah. And I think it's beyond Mormonism, right? I think this is a Western Christianity thing because we've done our religion from our heads. We've made truth the most important thing. And we have, I think we've developed as human beings to need that, to feel okay. Um, when you're raised in these, uh, in these communities where truth is preeminent, our, our, our bodies learn that that our heads have to be right. And so when we've been told that a, a, a burning sensation inside, um, a, a warm fuzzy can speak to truth. We talked about this in the Ken Wilbur episode. Warm fuzzies are never going to tell you about objective truth. That that's, that's not its function. Um, it can, it can talk to your subjective experience. It can talk to what, what maybe you feel called to or what is good for you in any given time in your life, but it, it can't speak to truth. And I think that our obsession with truth makes mysticism really, really hard. I also saw someone else kind of disagree and say, no, Mormons have, are, are really open to mysticism. And that speaks to how many different experiences different people are having, yeah. right? Because some people who were raised by people who saw the mysticism in the beginning were like, oh, yeah. But then that gets hard, too, because the founder of Mormonism was really into some mystical stuff that I think is more on the woo-woo pseudoscience side, right? So yeah. then we get that mixed up and say, I don't want any part of that either. But I think there was maybe some true mysticism sprinkled in with all the craziness. Yeah, I don't know. It, it is, you know, I look at my life and I, I didn't join any religion until, you know, I was a, 
late teenager, young adult, but I feel like my entire world told me either a don't trust your emotional experiences as truth or in instances where I was absolutely taught to trust my emotional experiences as truth. I, I found out later I was deceived. Yeah. And so now leaning into this space of letting go of, uh, the way I'd been told the way the world works, the way things are, the boxes I need to fit in and, and just open up to a very inclusive, we are all the universe perspective feels like I might be setting myself up to be tricked again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my response to that is that mysticism seems to me to be something entirely different than all the other things that claim to know what it was. Mysticism stops always right at the edge and lets you figure it out on your own. Absolutely. And it doesn't need things to be literal, right? We're so afraid of being literally wrong, but it's much harder to be wrong about something that is metaphorical. Yeah. Right. It's just something useful to get you into the stream of that deeper stream of reality. That's, that's all it is. And so it really doesn't matter how we describe it or what we use to get there, or if it's right or wrong. I remember the first time I encountered Richard Rohr, one of the things that's just right on his website about um, the living school. Uh, one of the things it says in there is that there is no discernible difference between the sacred and profane. And I remember being completely thrown by that. Like, what does that mean? Of course there's sacred. Of course there's profane. But through my contemplative practice, I'm starting to recognize that the profane is just parts of life that are gritty and hard and that are real and are the reality of a lot of people in the world. And they're, and that their experience because they're human is sacred. So it's, it's an example of where only within our hearts and heart cognition and within mysticism, can we start to make sense of these paradoxes being all one big happy part of the the whole of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking that I think in some ways a really good stand-up comedian <laughs> doing it an entirely different way, but almost sort of seems to be doing the same sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. you need to take things seriously that you weren't. You need to take things not seriously that you were. Yeah. You you need to understand that. We're, we're going to spend some time here laughing at all of it because it's all crazy. Mm-hmm. And you're not really any different than the person you judge as being bad. You're, you're not, there's just, I don't know. There seems like a lot of overlap, but anyway, that's a tangent. I think that's true. No, I think it's true. Yeah. I think they show us what's real. And yeah. to me, that is what mysticism is. It's, it's learning to not shy away from all of what it is to be human. Yeah. Love it. And and in doing that, we realize that we're bigger than we ever thought. Yeah. I, I, I and yeah, there's a sense of, as you put it, being part of all of it. Like we're we're not this individual thing. 
And it goes back to sort of this Buddhism conversation that we've had numerous times, but yeah. And it also reminds you that you aren't anyone else or their experience and you're all alone. Mm-hmm. There's all these juxtapose ironies that are just bumping into each other. And it's sort of, sort of, I think pushes us to just stop labeling it all together. That's right. We don't have to label what's right and what's wrong. We don't have to feel shame over being wrong. We don't have to yeah. feel great about being right. We can just let things be what they are. We we don't have to label it anymore. And so, yes, I think there's a there's a hesitation for those who have left religion to enter into mysticism in any way. And mm. yet, and it, because it is, it's a vulnerable move, but the very act of doing it helps us let go of some of the things we're clinging to for our well, for that we think are are making us well, that may actually be a barrier. Yeah. Yeah. We may be fooling ourselves. We may be. What? What? No, yeah. I I guarantee we are. <laughs> yeah. I guarantee in many many ways we are all fooling ourselves all the time. I love that uh, the book being wrong. Do you remember this book by Catherine Schultz? Yeah, I've got, I've got it somewhere up on my shelf behind me somewhere. I think I do too. It's got a red line and a black line right in the middle and a white cover basically. Yes. Yeah. And I I loved her, her uh, Ted talk was brilliant when she asks the audience, what does it feel like to be wrong? And everyone's saying, Oh, it feels terrible, humiliating, you know, saying all these words. And she says, Oh, you're describing what it feels like to know you're wrong. Most of it, feeling wrong is feels exactly like being right. Yeah. And it's just, we don't, know, right? most of us don't know it most of the time. And that's yeah. what it is to be human. And if we recognize that and we allow ourselves to risk something and we want to, we want to have a good reason for risking it. So I, can I share a few of the studied for the skeptics out there, the studied benefits of mysticism. Mm. <laughs> so what I have a list, one of them comes from an author and journalist named Stephen Kotler. And the other ones come from the, uh, the studies of a neuroscientist named Andrew Newberg, who um, studies the brain and mental states. Uh, so these are some of the benefits of mysticism and mystical experience. And the, what they mean by that is just, uh, you know, no one can make a, a mystical experience happen. That, that's kind of also one of the paradoxes and weird things about this, that you can set up the circumstances with the least um, barrier to experiencing something, right? So being quiet, being in a place that has aesthetics, aesthetics always help enter that space. Um, and like we say, it's different for different people, but people who have a regular practice where they touch into that world of the mystical um, there are some known benefits. So Stephen Kotler writes that accelerated learning, better problem solving, deeper empathy and understanding, enhanced creativity and communication, increased happiness and self-satisfaction. Mm. Andrew Neuber- Newberg has found being permanently less stressed, permanently less stressed, mm. losing bad habits, becoming better at collaboration and creativity and feeling happier and more self-satisfied. Yeah. And and that is not to even mention all of the the studies that have been done telling us that it it helps your immune system and it it helps regulate your mood and it helps thicken your brainstem. Like there are lots of really known benefits from this. Um, and so you don't have to be religious. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to be anything. Just be with yourself, and 
be in some sort of gratitude around it. And it can literally change your life if you do that for two minutes a day for any period of time. Yeah. I'm not bragging in any way saying, oh, I'm a mystic. Like I, I have far less of these experiences than others, but I am permanently less stressed. So, and when you said that, like, oh, I can relate to that. Like I've had experiences that have connected me to, we are all the universe expressing ourselves as humans for a little while. It has caused drastic differences in how I approach the world. And because of such, I am permanently less stressed. And, and I, yeah. I have to say, I feel the same thing, Bill, after yeah. having this kind of a practice over the last seven or eight years, I look around and I, I see people who have not had those kinds of practices around me, loved ones that I love dearly. And I, I do, I notice them getting stressed and I just, I, I just want to do all yeah. the wrong things in that moment and say, it, it's all good. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I want to do the Hakuna Matata thing, but yeah. You know, which doesn't help a stressed person. So no, I, have no, to, I, no. have to, <laughs> I have to learn to get in there and go, oh, that sounds really hard. Yeah. Which is hard for me. But, you know, because and then I just want to be like, start meditating. You'll get over it. <laughs> but you just listed a ton of benefits, health benefit. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want like to the viewer who doesn't want some of that? Right. Yeah. And it's it's all the stuff that religion promises. But mm. if we don't have the mysticism with it, it's actually doing the opposite. It's making us more stressed. It's making us feel worse about ourselves. It's doing all the things that take us away from that deeper love that heals. Mm. Amen. So. Love him. Anything else I, in your mind? I, I think that's that's a good a good download of mystical experience for me for today. How about you? Yeah, that's good. Folks, yeah. I hope you really enjoyed the conversation. Jana, thank you very much, by the way, for mm -hmm. spending the summer with us. And mm -hmm. we're all benefiting by having topics that uh, are interesting to you and for us to have a chance to to discuss those. And today's episode was, uh, I sort of had a mystical experience just having the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm better for it. I, it feels like whenever, whether it's this podcast or whether it's the series of conversations we had with Britt and with Anthony Miller, yeah, I just walk away from the space to talk about these things, feeling rejuvenated and more grounded. And I love it. Yeah. So folks, yeah. I hope you enjoyed it too. Check out almostawaken.org. It'd be very helpful to us if you would hit the donate button and send us five or 10 bucks. And if you're willing to, to donate five or 10 bucks a month, uh, or more if you're able and want to, but five or 10 bucks a month would be deeply helpful to us. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We'll just keep having them and uh, hope that we can keep nudging all of you and ourselves into a more awakened life. Amen. Okay. Awesome. Jana, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Take it easy, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified